Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the 14th, and this is another B-side episode. So before we get into everything, I want to remind everybody to please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you listen to podcasts. I also want to say please follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on both Instagram and Twitter. Hop in our Discord channel. As I mentioned, it is beyond fun these days. There's so many people in there. The links for that and for all our social media channels will be in the show notes of this episode, and I will also post them on social media. Los Angeles, if you are in town this weekend, come see me, DJ, at my new queer and ally pop party in downtown Los Angeles. Gorgeous, gorgeous. It's at Resident. It is on Friday night. That's tomorrow from 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. Tickets are in the show notes of this episode and also on social media. Please come introduce yourself to me if you're there. I'd love to meet you. I love meeting listeners of the show at Gorgeous, Gorgeous. It's a wonderful melding of my two favorite things in the world so hoping to meet some of you guys tomorrow night at gorgeous gorgeous and lastly an announcement that we are starting to put together another of our listener mailbag episodes this time we really want to encourage you to drop us your questions by voice note so this can be questions on the pantheon it can be on pop in general it can be quibbles with rankings or anything that's sort of tangentially related to pop or the pop pantheon so you can email them in written form but we're actually going to try to play some of your voices on air this time so drop us a voice note the email address is poppantheonpod at gmail.com and i'd love to hear what you guys are wondering about these days and anything you'd like me to address on air in a future listener mailbag episode this b-side this week is about a topic that comes up on every single episode of pop pantheon which is the billboard hot 100 the song chart that has been around for over 60 years at this point that is how we measure hit singles and it is a chart that has evolved in its metrics over time and has some really funny weird quirks in it and has attempted to stay relevant and in the zeitgeist in terms of what constitutes a hit song how do we measure that in various forms from the jukebox through the streaming era like how do we clock what is the most popular music in America. And there was no better person to have on, obviously, than the chart analyst himself, Slate's Chris Malamphy, who hosts Hit Parade and was also our guest on our fabulous Diana Ross series, which you should go back and listen to. So I had Chris on just to kind of grill him about the history of the Hot 100, how it's evolved, what the quirks are, whether it's accurately measuring hit songs at this point or in the past, can we stack the errors up against each other given how differently we measure this stuff over time? And it's a really wide ranging conversation and I had so much fun having it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Chris Malamphy. All right, so I'm here with cultural critic, chart analyst and host of the podcast Hit Parade, Chris Malamphy, welcome back to Pop Pantheon. Thank you, Louie. It's nice to be back. It's my pleasure to have you. Our episodes on Diana Ross continue to be two of my all-time favorites of the series, and I know our favorites of the listeners, too. So an extra pleasure to be able to talk to you once again. Thank you. I, I have shared those episodes far and wide because I thought we had a great conversation. And uh, it's kind of like a uh, de facto episode of Hit Parade about Diana that <laughs> I didn't even produce. So Love not that. a bad thing. Yes. Well, thank you so much. That's wonderful company for us to be in. I really appreciate that. 
So we're here today to talk about the Hot 100. Obviously, one of the many key pieces in what makes up the firmament of a pop star as we think about Mm -hmm. them. They are numbers that both the stars themselves and I think the fans seem to aggregate as means of supporting someone's success in the broader scope of pop stardom. So it comes up all the time on the podcast. And of course, it's become almost like a weapon wielded by stan culture in order to help buttress faves or pit pop stars against each other. So I think almost more than ever, this is one of the most important sort of metrics we have for pop stardom. And I thought it would be useful for you to come on here today as the charts are your providence, of course, to discuss the way that this chart has come into being, how it conceives of hit songs, how that's changed over time, how that's affected how we view pop star success over time, and to sort of help get into the nitty gritty of how this chart works and what it means in terms of clocking hit records. So I want to kick this off by... (laughs) unfortunately talking about Beyonce, who I have sworn I would stop talking about. You poor thing. But, of course, the queen finds her way, and 10 minutes before we got on the Zoom, Break My Soul was announced as the new Hot 100 number one song for this week. It is Beyonce's eighth number one single on the chart. So I kind of want to get into this conversation by asking you about Break My Soul's crowning as a means of getting at a bigger question, which is that as this chart has evolved, as the rules have come to incorporate all of these new factors related to streaming, and all of the metrics have changed in terms of clocking hits and created new pathways for manipulations, let's say, on the parts of fans and artists and labels, etc. Does having this be a number one hit mean the same thing as it did in, say, the 80s, the 90s, the 60s, whatever, in past iterations of number one hits on the Hot 100? I get versions of this question all the time. Because the Hot 100 has existed, it just celebrated its 64th anniversary last week. It launched on August 1st, 1958. So it's an old chart. And yet, despite the fact that it has been this lodestar in American culture for more than half a century, coming up on two-thirds of a century, it has never stayed static because the music business has not stayed static. Mm. And you basically have to accept, if you're going to accept the Hot 100 as a benchmark— you have to accept that it has never been the same chart exactly. What I like about the Hot 100 and why I still regard it as the authority and why I write about it and cover it on Hit Parade and all of that is because it has had the best all-around formula, and it is a formula, at any given time for calculating how big a hit is. However, the inputs into that formula have changed radically since 1958. They've changed radically even since the 90s when Destiny's Child scored their first number one hit with Bills, Bills, Bills in 1999. They've even changed fairly radically just in the last decade. Broadly speaking, the Hot 100 has always measured at least two things, sales of singles and radio airplay. Those two things are bedrock, and they still are to this day. Now, The makeup of what radio airplay is since the 50s and the makeup of what sales of singles has been has changed radically. There are now more radio formats starting in the late 90s. Billboard started counting any currents based format for the Hot 100, meaning 
you don't just listen to a top 40 pop station and have that count for the Hot 100, an R&B station, a country station, an alternative rock station that plays current music. Any of those now count for the Hot 100. So airplay has changed. Given the multifariousness of all the different types of sliced and diced genres, there are only a couple hundred, maybe 300 pure, quote unquote, top 40 stations in the country. Right. And of those, you know, some of them lean in certain dancey or rocky directions. Mm -hmm. So it would be crazy to only count pure top 40 stations for the Hot 100. And then on the sales side, of course, a sale in 2020's parlance is a download. And that's a purchase. Now... The elephant in the room, bigger than either of these things, and it was only added to the chart about 15 years ago and only became a significant part of the chart less than a decade ago, is streaming. Streaming is now overwhelmingly the biggest thing on the chart. It's funny because I like to say that streaming is a what-goes-around-comes-around technology because... When the Hot 100 launched in 1958, and Billboard is a little murky about this, it actually measured three things back in 1958. It measured sales of 45 RPM vinyl singles, radio airplay, and that, of course, was not computerized back in those days. It was whatever the radio station said they were playing. <laughs> and, the th- and I'm sure they right, were, we'll they were honest that. every single time. We'll get to that, because <laughs> uh, corruption is part of the history of this yes. chart, too. Sure. And the third thing back in 1958 was jukebox plays. Billboard had charts, separate charts to measure all three of these things. And what they did in the summer of 1958 was they combined them all into what I like to call one chart to rule them all, a chart that measured everything in one chart. What's murky is Billboard is a little vague about when jukeboxes dropped out of the chart. Mm. My understanding is they were gone out of the chart within about a year, like it didn't last. The jukebox as a medium certainly continued into the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but I just don't think Billboard had robust enough jukebox data, and so they kind of gave up on that category. The only reason I bring up jukeboxes is because what's funny about streaming is streaming really, really is the modern digital equivalent of the jukebox Mm. in this sense. With a jukebox, you pick the song, you, the user, get to choose the song, but you don't keep it. Right. Now, admittedly, when you have to pay 10 cents a song or 25 cents a song, that's more expensive than paying for a $10 monthly Spotify subscription and getting to play a song as many times as you want. Right. But the basic philosophy of streaming is very much like the jukebox. User choice, no retention. A sale is different. If you pay a buck 29 for a download at iTunes, you get to keep the song, but we have no idea how many times you play it. You could play it a bajillion times if you're a kid buying a song from a Disney animated movie like We Don't Talk About Bruno from Encanto. You may be playing it bajillion times. We have no way of measuring that. Conversely, radio, you don't keep the song and it's chosen by a program director who, of course, is targeting a demographic, targeting an audience, trying to, you know, make advertisers happy by keeping 18 to 49 year old females or whatever demographic they're chasing. So all of these things combine together to form the Hot 100. What I like about the Hot 100 and the reason why I think it's got the best philosophy is because it combines two major things, what I call active fandom and passive fandom. Mm. And I feel like these two things are really important. Passive fandom is basically radio. And to some extent, streaming, when we're talking about pre-programmed playlists, but streaming is more active. Streaming is kind of like a hybrid. But radio is definitely the passive medium. When we talk, for example, about the song of the summer, what is song of the summer? Well, it's that song you can't escape. I hear it everywhere. Well, what does hear it everywhere mean? It's pumping out of a car that's driving past you on the street. It's on the radio when you walk into a drugstore or a supermarket. Anytime you turn on your local KISS FM or 
or Z100 type station. They're playing it again. Right. Radio is really the medium of passive fandom. Mm. Active fandom is when the Beyonce fans have to all pile in right away yes. and own a record in the first week. Or in the case of this week, when Break My Soul is going to number one about two months after it came out, yeah. it's because the album came out and people are streaming the hell out of that album so much that the streaming numbers for Break My Soul went through the roof and that finally pushed it to right. the top. There's active fandom where the fan is actively picking something and there's passive fandom where it's kind of coming at you and it's ambient and it's in the air and you can't avoid it. But both forms of fandom to me are important for measuring hit status. And the reason I like the Hot 100 is it somehow captures both. I, I have so many questions for you and sure. I'm only using the Beyonce single here as a example of a broader thing. So maybe to broaden the rubric here a little bit or the scope of what we're talking sure. about. I tend to feel, and again, I'm no scholar on this, but I have paid close attention to this throughout my whole life and learned a lot listening to you and other people who are obviously much smarter than me on this particular topic. Because of the transition to streaming and the way that the billboard rules have had to adjust in order to account for that as one of the primary metrics it's clocking in order to generate these charts. I feel like there's been a situation that's been created that allows for both in a good way and in a bad way. Sure. Fan and artist and label machinations to bastardize some of the meaning of having a hit or a number one on the Hot 100 through manipulative tactics that we'll get into in more detail. I think there's obviously good elements to this, which is that there feels like there's a bit more of a bottom-up culture to what generates hits now by clocking streams. We're sort of just accounting for what people are organically listening to. So there's not the same sort of top-down record label services song to radio station. Radio station plays that song and you're kind of forced to accept it into your world. Like there's obviously an egalitarian nature to accounting for streaming as one of the main ways that we clock hit songs. In the past, it was this very simple formula where it was like the amount of time something was played on the radio and the amount of time someone went to a store and bought the single CD tape record itself. That was what essentially was the formula for what generated hits, which kind of was like a simpler, more straightforward, more uniform way of clocking it. But I guess was also like more ripe for like top down corruption. So a different kind of corruption. The word I like to use is fudgeable. Right. Fudgeable, but yet like more standardized and sort of straightforward. Now we're in the situation where online fandoms and standums, which as we have talked about ad nauseum on the show, people know are these very fervent, active groups of people online who have almost like a cult-like devotion to the person that they stand. Sure. And they can manipulate things to the point where like songs can be sort of funged, to use your word, to the top of the chart without necessarily being the biggest hits. And I feel like that has caused the Hot 100 and having a hit song or a number one song to lose some of its luster because there will be weeks, for instance, where like a new Drake album will debut and all 15 of the Drake songs are like in the top 40, let's say. And I'm going to myself looking back at this chart, like are those 15 songs, the 15 most culturally saturating songs of that week? There's of course an argument where you could say yes. And there's another argument where I feel like that could be pretty misleading. I wonder what your take on that is just taking it back to Break My Soul, for instance. Is Break 
My Soul, the number one song in the country, if we were clocking this by, let's say, like 1992 metrics? Or is Break My Soul a number one record because online fandoms and the powerful beehive, etc. And of course, Beyonce and the record label and all of the people that are helping her behind the scenes put the right machinations in place to just make this happen. I see where you're going with that question. Several things have changed over the last 20 years. Basically, I call the last roughly 20 years since about 2003, let's say 2005, the digital era on the charts. Mm -hmm. And one thing that the digital era messed with was this nicely regimented system we had for the first 40 years of the rock era, where singles were chosen by a record company and issued one at a time, and they rose and fell, rose and fell, like waves crashing on the shore. One of the points that Steve Jobs of Apple negotiated with the record labels back in 2003 when he launched the iTunes Music Store, and was basically trying to get the labels who were very resistant to digital music, he was basically saying, like, look, you're competing with free right now because people are stealing your stuff. Right. I'm going to give you a legal way to do it. One of the negotiating points Steve Jobs made was everything's going to be the same price. Everything's going to be 99 cents. Now that since has gotten fudged with a little bit. The price rose to a buck 29. Some singles are 99 cents. Some are 69 cents. Right. But the broad theme that Steve Jobs said is everything, an album cut, a single, the song you're promoting to radio, the track that's eighth on the playlist. A legacy song like All I Want for Christmas is You, which wouldn't have made it before. A legacy song, right? Or one of my favorite examples, when the iTunes store launched in 2003, for the first time in history, you could buy Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. Just that song. Not an album. You could buy Stairway to Heaven. You could not do that from 1971 to 2003. So the so-called deep cut, the album cut, went away. Effectively, everything on an album became a single. And once Billboard determined that, well, if they're all singles and they're all selling, they all should be eligible for the Hot 100, that messed with the entire economy. And by the way, this is even before streaming comes along. Right. Streaming gets added to the chart around 07, 08, and that's before Spotify is even in America. Spotify gets added in 2012. Right. So we've really only been living in the Spotify era and really the streaming era of the charts for about a decade now. But even before that, say in 2008, when Taylor Swift dropped her second album, Fearless, in the fall of 2008. Right. Something like 12 Taylor Swift songs all popped onto the Hot 100. Now, was White Horse as big a hit as You Belong With Me to pick two different Taylor Swift songs? No, clearly not. Yeah. One of them was down in the 80s and one of them was in the top 10. Right. And one of them was getting played by radio stations and getting its numbers boosted by that. And one was not. To go back to your original question, I would say the Beyonce song, which is rising to number one and I believe it's seventh or eighth week on the chart. I need to double check that earned it, I would say, more than the average single did. Beyonce's single really did kind of claw its way to the top. Mm -hmm. And yes, it got its last boost from a burst of streaming that was fueled by the album dropping. Right. But part of what we're measuring now and part of what is making people scratch their heads, like, does it count if Drake is polluting the chart with every track on one of his album, is... We just have more data now. Yeah. And so there's always going to be an apples and oranges and kumquats right. <laughs> aspect to this chart where there's an asterisk on every achievement. For example, one of as a Beatles fan, one of my most cherished achievements was that week in April 1964 when the Beatles held down the entire top five on the Hot 100. Right. And it was said at the time, the circumstances may never exist for this to ever happen again. If you open up Fred Bronson's Billboard Book of Number One Hits, the last edition of which which came out in 2003 before there was an iTunes music store. Right. You will see him saying, it's in print, the circumstances for this may never exist again. Right. Well, I sound like I'm throwing shade at Fred. How no, could no. Fred have known? I would I would have probably written the same thing. <laughs> True. 
But it turns out in 2018, Drake equaled that record. You can't beat that record because there are only five positions and he got the top five. Actually, he didn't do it in 2018. That week he had something like eight of the top 10. I think he finally did it last year with Certified Lover Boy, where he locked down the entire right. top five. Right. And there are those who would argue what the Beatles did in April of 1964, what Drake did in September or October of 2021 are not functionally equivalent. I agree with those people. <laughs> right. I agree too. On the other hand, if streaming had existed, in the 60s. The Beatles would have had many more hits than they actually did. For example, no singles were released from Sgt. Pepper. Ergo, under the rules at the time, nothing on Sgt. Pepper could appear on the Hot 100. Right. If streaming had existed in June 1967, there probably would have been five hits off Sgt. Pepper where even right. if the Beatles weren't promoting them to radio, getting better, and When I'm 64, and Lovely Rita yes. all would have appeared somewhere on the Hot 100. Right. I think Billboard's perpetual argument is... As we have better data, we keep changing this chart. Yes. And the only way to make people happy, like that you can compare a Drake feat to a Beatles feat, is if you somehow leave the chart with the technology it had 50, 60 years ago. And that's just not plausible. Right, right. I, I, and I wouldn't want that. I'm try, I'm sitting here as you're talking, trying to think to myself, like, what would one do? Because the thing is, and look, maybe this just makes me fogey, Chris. I want to put that out there. I just pulled up the list of Hot 100 number ones for the year 2021. There's a Drake song on here that hit number one called What's Next. Now, I could not tell you what this song sounds like. Me neither. Summer, all I did was rest, okay? And New Year's all I did was stretch, okay? And Valentine's I am an avid pop consumer, especially of hit pop music. I'm an avid Drake listener. Even as my fandom has fallen off, I always listen to his music. That kind of blows for me because when I think about comparing a hit like What's Next to the way that we tend to talk about these things and stack them up against hits of the past by Michael and Janet Jackson, by the Beatles. I mean, we talk about Rhythm Nation having seven top 10 songs and Bad having five number ones. Right. Even my girl Katy Perry's Teenage Dream had five what felt like traditionally earned number one singles, you know, 10, 12 years ago in 2010 during the Teenage Dream era. I'm waving my hand around okay. because Katy Perry cheated on two of those singles by using remixes to get them to number one. But, right, right. Okay, but, but she earned it more than, say, Drake did with yes, What's Next. Exactly, I agree with the exactly. basic premise. Exactly. So you've got this Drake song that is now in the annals as a number one hit just because a lot of people streamed it out of sheer interest during the first week it came out. And that's how the chart calculates things. And the average pop consumer probably like never heard that song again or never even heard it in the first place. And when Billboard copy says, hey, this is a number one song. People think that that means the same thing as it did before. Whereas Drake's What's Next is not the same thing as the number ones of the past. So like Drake's song will be now in the annals next to all of those Beatles songs you were just mentioning, but it like doesn't belong there. By the way, Drake has a tattoo on his body of him standing in front of the Beatles walking across Abbey Road. <laughs> and, and he has actually put lyrics in some of his tracks like, I got more slaps than the Beatles. Yeah. Back home smoking legal. He's very proud of his equaling and beating records by the Beatles. Yeah, and I just want to... It's no knock to Drake. He has plenty of incredible, memorable, amazing hits. Sure. I'm not trying to knock his stature and culture. But is what is what next is what's next exactly. as culturally ubiquitous as, say, to pick another Drake song, Hotline Bling, which, by the way, only peaked at number two. Ex exactly. And, of course, there's also an asterisk on this list of Hot 100 number ones from 2021 that says the number one song from 2021 was Dua Lipa's Levitating, which only hit number two. But anyway, I digress. My point is you want to have an honest 
assessment of what the most popular songs in the country are at a given moment. And as you were pointing out earlier in the conversation, you want to sure. utilize all the new technology that you can to assess those things. But I do right. feel like having a Hot 100, number one, in the way that we account for some of these things, giving streaming metrics, and especially, and we should point this out, when it comes to established artists who have a lot of interest going into anything sure. that they're going to release, whether it actually becomes a hit or not, has kind of bastardized the idea of the Hot 100, number one. Or is that too purist and there's been plenty of bastardizing in the past? I'm nodding. I have several thoughts. Yeah. All right, one thought. You dealt me the card, What's Next by Drake, which I agree was a non-entity of a number one hit. There yes. are there are well, worse ones. Right. There are yeah. worse ones in the last couple yes. of years. Are you aware that Takashi Six Nine got a number one hit in yes. June of 2020, yes. which is a appalling An record, awful record that nobody I feel like remembers unless I'm crazy featuring Nicki Minaj. But that's my point. And Nikki's another important example of this. Like the fact that Nicki Minaj has like what? 50 memorable smashes on the Hot 100 never hit number one, but through like chart gaming streaming things got her two number ones on this terrible Takashi 6ix9ine song and then on her utterly forgettable verse on a utterly forgettable remix of Doja Cat Say So. This Cat speaks thing. to exactly what I'm talking about. We don't have an honest record of the biggest hits for various artists and of various times in this ecosystem. The fact that those will be remembered as Nicki Minaj's two number one singles and all of her like 9,000 other actual real hits won't speaks to a lot of the issues I feel like I have with the way that streaming has corrupted some of these things. You don't have that looking back in the same way, I don't feel. Like I sometimes will go back and look at all the Hot 100 number one songs from 1987, let's say. And you go down the list, and I remember 95% of those songs, they have stayed with us. They're hits for a reason. They've stood the test of time. Like you look at those songs and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. These are the songs I remember that defined 1987. Maybe there's one here or there that I'm like, what's that? But for the most part, in a bigger percentage, it feels like than now. It feels like the Hot 100 in this period accounted for what were the most culturally saturating songs of that moment more accurately. I'm looking back at this list now. You've got What's Next by Drake on this list from 2021. You've got this song Permission to Dance by BTS, which I don't really even remember either. So there's these vast stand armies for these big established acts that can power these songs based on sheer interest to number one in their debut weeks. Then they fall off the charts and we never hear from them again. And they're forever remembered as number one songs. I think it's disingenuous to think of What's Next and Permission to Dance as the same thing in terms of being a number one song as like Love Will Never Do Without You or something. Right, but here's where you're cherry picking. You're cherry picking the good ones. Let me give you another <laughs> example. Do you, know who Do you know who Chubby Checker is? Of course, The Twist. Okay, right. Yes, you nailed it. Okay, Chubby Checker had two number one hits. Name me the second one. Let's twist again? I don't know. No. The correct answer is Pony Time. Lol. Chubby Checker had a second number one hit, also a dance instructional record in, I believe it was 1961, called Pony Time. Do the pony with your partner. Sing me a few bars of Pony Time. I'm going to think you, you can't sing it. I can't sing a few bars of Pony Time. There were throwaway follow-up number one hits. Right. What's Chuck Berry's only number one hit on, in Hot 100 history? 
I'm going to guess it's not any of the six or seven Chuck Berry songs I'm thinking of right now in my head. The correct answer is My Dingling in 1973, <laughs> a terrible novelty record that's basically no! a double entendre about a man's dick. Ew. Like that's Chuck Berry's no. only number one uh. song. If you want me to point to travesties on the Hot 100 in its first 40 years, I can point to them left, right, up, down, and center. Sure. There's a rumor that has been all but backed up that in 1978, Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty, a legitimately great record. Yeah. Should have gone to number one. It peaked at number two. And reportedly, some executives went to dinner with the guy in charge of the charts at Billboard and told them that they really wanted Shadow Dancing by Andy Gibb to spend one more week at number one. And like Billboard somehow agreed. This story is so apocryphal, I can't prove it's true. <laughs> but I, knowing how corrupt the charts were prior to SoundScan, and I should mention what that word means in a minute, I can entirely believe that some crap like that went down. It was possible prior to the advent of computerized charts at the beginning of the 1990s to really buy yourself a top 10 record. Mm. Reportedly, if you read the book Hitmen, great book by Frederick Dannon that exposed the underbelly of the music industry, and by the way, came out in 1990, so it predates all the computerization of the charts. Right. Soundscan is 92, right? That's when that happened? 91. 91. 91. 91. And I believe it was Neil Bogart of, I guess it was Casablanca Records, had just signed Cher, and she was going to appear on The Tonight Show, and he wanted to be able to present her with a gold single and a top 10 record. And so he like paid off everybody he had to pay off to make sure that that record was certified gold, even though it hadn't sold very well, and pushed it into the top 10 so he could say, you've got a top 10 record and it's gold. Here's your plaque. Oh my God. he could do it live on The Tonight Show. So talk about corruption. There's corruption and then there's corruption, Right. right? When a bunch of BTS stands all pile in in a single week in July of 2021 and make permission to dance, you're right, a pretty damn forgettable BTS record. Yeah. Number one for a single week. I'll see that and I raise you a bunch of tracks in the 70s that went top 10 or even number one right. that were not remotely as popular as it made it seem. Now, when we had computerized charts, yeah. which started in 1991, and I should mention for your audience what SoundScan is. SoundScan was a technology that Billboard added to the charts in 1991, first the album chart, then the singles charts, right. that counted individual sales at the retail counter for the first time. Mm-hmm. Meaning, they were no longer just calling retailers and saying, tell me your 30 records this week. Mm-hmm. They were actually getting piece counts. They knew exactly how many times, beep, a UPC barcode, beep, beep, <laughs> was actually passed across the register. Right. And this was important because it actually gave Billboard a sense of the magnitude of a hit. So, for example, if a record wasn't just the top seller of the week, but it was the top seller by a two-to-one margin, that mattered for the formula of the chart. Suddenly, mm. they had incredible data. Prior to SoundScan, it was very difficult for any hip-hop act to score a number one hit. Mm. One record that got robbed in 1989 was Wild Thing by Tone Loke. 
a record that was reportedly outselling every other track on the Hot 100 by a three or four to one ratio and should have been a massive number one hit, but it peaked at number two. Right. You want to say partially because of corruption. There was some of that. There were white program directors who maybe didn't want to report how much they were playing this record by a black guy. Or simply put, take the corruption out of it. Billboard didn't have the data to measure the fact that Wild Thing was selling so much better than every other record on the chart. So if you don't have that kind of math, your formula literally won't allow Wild Thing to go to number one. Mm. It was the top selling single in America, but only the fifth ranked airplay song in America. Hence, it peaks at number two. Mm. So the good old days weren't always good. Tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems. (laughs) I just repeated a Billy Joel lyric. There's corruption and then there's corruption. Like there's gaming the charts and there's gaming the charts. If there is a way to game the charts, the industry will figure it out and take advantage of it. And this has always been true. I guess I would take fans, passionate fans, corrupting the chart over craven music industry executives corrupting the charts. Exactly. Like, did Shadow Dancing by Andy Gibb need that seventh week at number one in the summer of 1978? Or would it have been nice if Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty, the song with that awesome saxophone solo, if that had actually gone to number one for a week, I would pick B. Right. But some record executive wined and dined somebody at Billboard and managed to keep it at number two. Again, mm. this story is apocryphal. It may not be true. It's alleged, but it's been reported so frequently across the media that I half believe it's true. So there's that. Yeah. There's my pony time example. Sure. And there's an element of don't hate the player, hate the game. Right. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Like once we realized in the 90s. Again, this is long before there's any digital anything, right? right? Digital music in the 90s was just the ones and zeros on the pits of a CD. Like, that was digital music back then. When we had computerized charts, Mm -hmm. and by the way, one other thing that Billboard launched in 1991 was they launched something called BDS or Broadcast Data Systems, which is simply put, it's what's in your phone right now with Shazam. They were actually counting the number of times that a radio station was playing a record, not simply trusting the radio station to say, yep, these are our top 30 that records this seems week. wise. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is what payola was. And right. by the way, payola was a term invented in the 50s. And Alan Freed actually got strung up by the federal judiciary for his role in payola. Right. But payola didn't end in the 50s. In fact, the second peak of payola happened in the 1980s. It's reported again in Frederick Dannon's book, Hitmen. Mm-hmm. They had to pass around some indictments all over again. And I believe it was 1986 because it had gotten really out of control. Right. Where things that were being reported to billboard by radio stations were not always the records they were actually playing. Mm. So rap was underperforming on the charts prior to SoundScan. Country was underperforming on the charts prior to SoundScan. Even some forms of alternative rock were underperforming on the charts prior to SoundScan. So SoundScan really gave us a sense of how big certain records and whole genres were doing. And basically the story of this chart is the story of ever greater data. Like, for example, you brought up Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. Yes. Christmas music has always been a bugaboo for the charts because Christmas music is played very intensively for a four to six week period every year. And then the minute it's like December 27th, everybody's like, "Ugh, I never want to hear that Mariah Carey record again. (laughs) And then, of course, they want to hear it again next November. But like once we're all sick of rocking around the Christmas tree, we're like, "Okay, love you, Brenda Lee. I'm done. I don't want to hear that record anymore. In the old days of the charts, that meant the Christmas records rarely went to number one. Right. Other than the Chipmunk song by (laughs) Alvin and the Chipmunks in 1958, which went to number one, largely because the Chipmunks were a hot novelty act at the time. Right.
literally not a single Christmas record, nothing, went to number one. Not Band-Aids, Do They Know It's Christmas, not Last Christmas by Wham, mm-hmm. not Brenda Lee's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, none of these records. Many of them didn't even chart on the Hot 100 at all, or if they did, they peaked below the top 10. Right. Because the old system that relied on reporting of airplay and reporting of sales simply didn't capture the fast bursts of data that fuel Christmas music from about mid to late November through about the fourth week of December. Now we have streaming data. So we not only know that these Christmas songs sell and we know not only that they stream like crazy, but that people play them to death, like to an egregious degree. Mm-hmm. I've checked the data. I did a whole hit parade episode about this last December in right. my Chestnut Roasters episode. Mm-hmm. Turns out that the most played solo song by Paul McCartney in any given year is not Silly Love Songs, a five-week Hot 100 number one in 1976. It's not Ebony and Ivory, a seven-week number one in 1982. It's Wonderful Christmas Time, right. a record that didn't even appear on the Hot 100, yet every year it is spun somewhere in the neighborhood of 40,000 times a year. Most of it, again, in a six-week burst from about November 15th to about December 26th, 27th, 28th. And now we know just how big Wonderful Christmas Time is, a right. record that didn't even make the Hot 100. Right. So at some point, you kind of have to ask yourself, are you going to hide this data or limit this data? Right. One argument I've heard for the Drake problem mm-hmm. is if a Drake song is not being actively promoted to radio, maybe you don't have to let all 25 tracks on a Drake album appear on the chart. That would go a long way in fixing some of my personal concerns about this, I think. It would. But I'll tell you what, What's Next and the mediocre Drake songs, like Way Too Sexy, would still debut at number one. Like, as long as that's the promotional single, it's going to debut at number one. So you're going to eliminate the blanketing of the chart by every track from the J. Cole album or every track from the Weekend album or every track from the Bieber album. But you're not going to do away with the BTS song that just crashes in at number one because the fans all bought it. We have to assume that in the 50s and 60s, if there was an Elvis single or a Beatles single, the fans fans all crashed in and bought it in ridiculous quantities. Oh, right. In fact, in 1964, during that epic week where the Beatles held down the top five, the number one song was Can't Buy Me Love. And Can't Buy Me Love shot from number 26 to number one in a single week, mostly because of sales. It sold something like two million singles in a single week. That's a staggering number. Yes. And if they had had a better computerized system in 1964, Can't Buy Me Love wouldn't have just leapt to number one. It would have debuted at number one. But the system didn't have that level of data granularity back then. Now we do. Now we know that when the BTS fans all show up in week one and buy Butter, Butter debuts at number one. And I kind of don't know what you do about that to limit that or prevent that. I just think it would be nice if the Hot 100 was giving the general public a direct view of what the most culturally saturating songs are at a given moment. That just feels like that should be their aspiration. Because I also think that's how they would be most useful. Because the next question that I want to ask you is, these numbers are obviously used by both pop stars and their fan armies as a way of propagating, of establishing, of buttressing an artist's stardom and legacy. The number of Hot 100 hits you have, the number of number one hits you have, these are currency in the pop star landscape. So can you share a little bit about how pop stars and their fans have used these metrics, particularly on the Hot 100, this language of hit music, to 
solidify their legacies to solidify themselves in our parlance in tier one or tier two, et cetera, et cetera. Like how has that evolved over time and how have they used these I mean, things? I keep hitting on BTS. Right. A big goal of BTS as of two years ago, it's now early August, 2022. As of early August, 2020, two years ago at this time, yeah. BTS had yet to score a number one song on the Hot 100. Right. It was their white whale. It was their ultimate goal. They and the army, the BTS fan base, what they wanted more than anything in the world was for BTS to have a Hot 100 number one. And about a month later with Dynamite, yep. they finally had it. Dynamite, mm-hmm. by the way, a damn good pop record. Love that like, song. I, Love that song. Totally like earned number one. Totally earned number one. Yep. But it debuted at number one, same as Permission to Dance right. did. Right, right, right. But, Permission to Dance fell off the chart in like four weeks. Right, but then it became an actual legit number one traditional chart. Yeah. Like it caught up with itself or right. something. So. My point when I bring up BTS is the Hot 100 still has enough currency with current fan bases that everybody still wants their favorite to get a number one hit on the Hot 100. People will still move heaven and earth. Record labels will move heaven and earth to make a record number one. Harry Styles arguably scored his first number one in the summer of 2020 with Watermelon Sugar. Right. Because one week when Columbia recognized that the competition was a little weak, they primed the market with like special edition physical singles of watermelon sugar right and beyonce did that this week by dropping like 500 remixes of break my soul right and the thing is i can point to the same tricks 30 years ago mariah carey would put out 49 cent singles in the 90s to get her track the last mile to number one mm. like these stunts are as old as the charts themselves and the thing is it's not really corrupt to put something out on the market and sort of invite people to buy it either they do or they don't and you can point to as many examples of gambits that failed right as gambits that succeeded. I remember back when Iggy Azalea was hot around 2014. Yeah. They put out this duet single with J-Lo called oh, Booty. Of course. that featured the two of them in a video cavorting around showing off their asses. Mm -hmm. And in theory, you looked at that video and you're like, oh, they're going to try and get a number one hit out of this. Peaked at like number 18. Right. So like sometimes crass, craven tactics don't actually work. Right. Like you can point to all the tactics. BTS, for example, just a couple months ago, dropped a greatest hits album right around when they announced their thing I'm not allowed to call a hiatus by the BTS army, but really is a hiatus. Sorry, folks. It's a goddamn hiatus. (laughs) Um, Sorry, that just pisses me off that they're policing people. (laughs) who want to call it a hiatus because that's exactly what it is. You're free to call it a Um, hiatus here on Pop Pantheon, Chris. It's a bloody hiatus. But anyway, and they put out a single that accompanied that Greatest Hits album and the single peaked just outside the top 10. Like sometimes even the mighty BTS who scored something like six straight number one hits on the Hot 100, sometimes the gambit doesn't always work. Right. You're making me Um, think about Yummy by Justin Bieber as well. Yummy's a great example. Like Justin Bieber actually tried to foment some corruption. He basically told people how to like set up a playlist on their Spotify and play Yummy over and over again. Right. And he peaked at number two behind Roddy Rich in early 2020 and had egg all over his face. Right. He nakedly tried to push his record to number one and it didn't work. Right. So sometimes the gambits don't work. Mm. And yet, okay, why does Justin Bieber want Yummy to be number one? Because it's the Hot 100, because it's still considered the ultimate prize mm. for hit-making status in the biggest country for music in the world. Right. And th- the other thing that's tricky about the Hot 100, and I was going to say this before when you were talking about what it measures now versus what it measured then. Right. Here's the fluky thing about the Hot 100. It only measures popularity one week at a time. Mm. So when we say that such and such, that's a number one record, what we mean is that for one week, at least, it lined up enough data 
to be toppermost to the poppermost, if you borrow that British phrase. Yeah. So, for example, there are some great number two records. Of course. For example, in the summer of 1984, when Prince was number one with the deserved number one, Wed and Dubs Cry, sure. poor Bruce Springsteen was peaking at number two with Dancing in the Dark, the what? closest he's ever come to having a number well, one hit. Bruce wow. Springsteen. What a one-two. What a one-two, right? One of the greatest one-twos in chart history. So do people look back on Dancing in the Dark and say, well, you know, that song is just not as great a record because it only peaked at number two. No, no Dancing no, in the Dark's no. a fucking great record. Yes. It had the bad luck to be peaking on the charts the same week Prince leapt over Bruce and jumped to number one. Right. I think about um, Work It by in, Missy Elliott in this category, too. You took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. I was just going to point to that one. In 2002 slash 2003, poor Missy Elliott spent 10 weeks at number two with Work It, one of my favorite singles of the last quarter century. Is it worth it? Let me work it. I put my thing down. Why? Because it was stuck for those 10 weeks behind Eminem's Lose Yourself. Lose Yourself, a legitimately yeah, big record. Another like great Eminem's, one. Right, a great, a legitimately great single. Mm -hmm. Does that mean Work It is less of a single because it only peaked at number two? No, no, it just had the misfortune that each week it was just doing a little less well or sometimes a lot less well than Lose Yourself. Mm -hmm. Journeys Don't Stop Believin' in 1981 only peaked at number nine. I think we can all agree that among Journey records, that's the legacy single now. Bigger than Open Arms, which by the way, spent six weeks at number two. How many people think about Open Arms now no. versus how many people are probably listening to Don't Stop Believin' on their oldies radio Literally station right heard now it as I at speak. a wedding this very weekend. And yet these measurements of week by week performance, we go, well, don't Stop Believing is a number nine record. Right. That's what it did in 1981. And, and look, I'm the chart guy saying this. I follow this chart like it's a Bible. I, but even I have to admit, there are records that felt, you know, Tiny Dancer by Elton John yeah. peaked at number 41. You know, this is all making me think about what my next question for you, which is essentially like chart kinks. So we did an episode on TRL recently, and I did it with another person my age. And in the midst of doing our work for that episode, we were going back through some of the definitive hits from that era. And we were looking at songs that felt utterly superlative to that moment in time that stand the test of time to this day and seem like sure. they are the songs of that era. And we were going back and looking at their chart positions, and we were completely perplexed with where they stood on the charts versus how big these songs felt to us as the target audience for pop music sure. during that period of time. Now, there's obviously the hits that did line up. There were, you know, big number one and top five hits like Hit Me Baby One More Time and I Want You Back and I Want It That Way and Genie in a Bottle and Bills, 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 etc. But there were two songs in particular by two superlative TRL artists Christina Aguilera's Dirty and Britney's I'm a Slave for You, which peaked at, I think, numbers like 57-ish and 27-ish, respectively. You're going to have to fact check me on that. But the point is, we were just perplexed because these are the songs that feel like two of the biggest songs of that era. They've lived on. I know this through my DJ work. I know this through just talking to people my age. These were the biggest songs of their moment.
And yet these chart positions feel sure. utterly dissonant to how we remember them in culture. Oh, yeah. So I can't have you here without asking to explain how that kind of thing can happen, not just for those particular two songs, because obviously those are particularly shocking. I think anybody who's listening to this who isn't a chart nerd is going to be shocked to hear the song positions of those songs considering their cultural impact. Right. But this isn't the first time that this, something like this has happened. There's plenty of times where kinks have led songs that feel humongous in culture to have weirdly low chart placements. So can you describe both that particular instance and maybe some other fun instances where these kinks have caused this kind of disparity between cultural impact and chart position. Right. When I'm explaining things like this and when I was explaining also the history of All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey, yeah. how it did nothing in 1994 right. and became a number one hit in 2019, yeah. I'm always having to explain the evolution in chart rules because that affects how something like I'm a slave for you or dirty does on the charts. Right. It's like, does the label, for example, decide to release it as a retail single, thus giving it sales points in the case of I'm a slave for you in 2001, they did not. Right. Many singles at that point were not being released as retail singles. That's the Britney single climbing the charts with one hand tied behind its back because it's relying only on airplay. Right. And that's because um, they wanted to juice album sales. Essentially, They want to juice album sales. Right. Simply put. So yes. basically just to lay this out clearly, what Chris is saying is that they would withhold selling I'm a slave for you as a separate single in order to force people to go out and buy Britney's self-titled album Precisely. on which that song appears. Precisely. And also I think it's important to say that in that era, Doing that, buying the album, didn't juice the singles performance. Right, yes, because now in the streaming era, if you're streaming a single, it affects both the album chart position and the singles position on the Hot 100. Right. That wasn't true in 2001. Again, we simply didn't have the technology. Well, all we knew is you either bought something or you didn't. And if you bought I'm a Slave for You, a CD single, let's say you lived in England where it was released as a single, yeah. and you took it home and used it as a beer coaster and never played it once, we would never know that. What we now know is that people who love I'm a Slave for You really loved I'm a Slave for You and played it and played it and played it. And now we have the data to measure that because we know what you're clicking on in a streaming service. Maybe not you personally, but in aggregate, yeah, we know no, what, people are, what people are <laughs> clicking on year-round. Right, right, right. So, I mean, some of the quirks, for example, for the first roughly 40 years that the Billboard Hot 100 was in existence, songs had to be released as retail singles to make the chart. Right. The wheels started to come off this system in the 90s, a decade that I have commemorated in an episode of my podcast called The Great War Against the Single. If yes. you go to my Hit Parade podcast and look up this episode I did in September of 2017 yes. called The Great War Against the Single. Great episode. I go in great detail about Thank you very yes. much. I go in great detail about this, but basically to cut a long story short, the record labels noticed in the 90s that if they withheld a retail single on a track they were promoting to radio, mm -hmm. they would force people to buy not just the album, but like the very pricey CD back when the compact disc was more expensive than the vinyl LP Right. or the cassette. Right. And it poured revenue into their coffers. They started doing it with tracks like You Can't Touch This by MC Hammer, mm. which was only ever issued as a 12-inch vinyl single in 1990. Hence, it probably would have been a number one hit instead of peaked at number eight. Mm. They started doing it with more pop-leaning tracks like I'll Be There For You by the Rembrandts, the theme from Friends. <laughs> was not issued as a single would have been absolutely a hot 100 number one hit in the summer of 1995 because it was the most played song at radio for something like eight weeks mm -hmm. but because it was not released as a single it didn't appear on the hot 100 at all right don't speak by no doubt 
was the number one song at radio for 18 weeks. I kid you not. Yeah, that doesn't and surprise. during the, all of those 18 weeks, it was not issued as a single. Hence, Don't Speak was not on the Hot 100 at all. But what happened to Tragic Kingdom, the album by No Doubt, it sold 10 million copies. <laughs> right. So what did Interscope care about not releasing a retail single and foregoing a number one Hot 100 hit right. when they could have the overwhelming number one album in the country going diamond, right? That was their priority in terms of revenue. So Billboard finally in 1998 relented right. and changed the policy such that non-retail singles, basically album cuts, could now appear on the Hot 100. Now, to go back to the Britney Spears example, if you, record label, chose not to release a retail single, you were handicapping your song right. because it was then going to rely only on radio airplay to climb the chart. Right. And they weren't clocking MTV spins at this point, right? You're inter asking an interesting question. That's yet another wrinkle. Back in the heyday of MTV in the 80s and 90s, right. MTV did not count for the Hot 100. My shorthand on that is that MTV was kind of a monopoly. Right. MTV was, in essence, the biggest radio station in the country, right. and they had ridiculous sway over the music business. And if they gave MTV the power to influence the Hot 100, MTV could have single-handedly gamed the charts. Right. That's my interpretation of why MTV was never added to the Hot 100. It's not as if the average fan could program MTV. Sure. The only time music videos have ever counted for the Hot 100 is YouTube. Right. YouTube was added to the chart in 2013, and to this day, if a video does well, it will help a song up the chart. Right. So video does count because it's now user generated video play that is being tallied by Billboard and now factors into the Hot 100. Right. But that's yet another wrinkle. Yeah. As I said before, when digital music came along, again, even before streaming, just the lowly download, the dollar download, the 99 cent iTunes music store download, when that came onto the charts in the mid 2000s, that rewired everybody's thinking mm -hmm. about, well, Okay, in 1998, Billboard made it possible for a deep cut, an album cut, to make the chart. Now we're saying that everything on an album, including the track that Taylor Swift isn't promoting right now, right. that also is eligible for the chart. And we've got data about how well it's selling. Mm -hmm. One example I like to give, when Columbia was trying to choose the third single from Adele's 21 album, the first single famously was Rolling in the Deep. The second single famously was Someone Like You. Mm -hmm. They had a couple of candidates they could have gone with. They went with Set Fire to the Rain. And the reason they went with Set Fire to the Rain is that Set Fire to the Rain had done well enough without them promoting it to radio at all right. to crack the Hot 100 and sell about 750,000 downloads by itself. It's as if they had a live market test. Of, totally. Wow. I guess people really like Set Fire to the Rain. Screw it. The third single from 21 is going to be Set Fire to the Rain. Sure enough, when they started promoting it to radio, Set Fire to the Rain goes to number one on the Hot 100. Right. So these wrinkles all sort of changed the perception of what a hit was. Let's take another example, a hit that's in the top five right now. Kate Bush is running up that right. hill. <laughs> that song 
would not have been eligible to re-enter the Hot 100 unless it was actively being promoted to radio by the label. Right. It would not have been eligible to re-enter the Hot 100 when Stranger Things did its thing right. back in early June right. if Billboard hadn't changed yet another rule 10 years ago allowing old songs to re-enter the chart. Right. Billboard used to have a rule that, yes, we know that week in and week out Don't Stop Believing by Journey is getting played somewhere in America, mm-hmm. but we're not going to count that if it's not being actively promoted to radio. Mm-hmm. Well, now, if a song is doing well enough in the various metrics that contribute to the Hot 100, even if it's an old record, it can come back to the Hot 100. Right. So all of these wrinkles, as you call them, yeah. that's a good word, they've all affected our understanding of what a hit is. Mm. Like whether something is a so-called deep cut or whether it's a single in waiting, whether a track deserves to appear on the Hot 100. Because again, in the 90s, there were these massive radio records that weren't appearing on the Hot 100. Mm-hmm. They go down in chart history limbo. No doubts don't speak will always go down as a non-Hot 100 number one hit, even though everybody knows if you were a sentient being in late 1996, (laughs) you heard Don't Speak by No Doubt. Like it was everywhere. Everywhere. So these wrinkles have affected the chart as long as the chart has existed. I guess that leads me to my last question in this particular area, which is about the Billboard 200, the kind of sister chart to the Hot 100, which clocks album sales. So you're talking about how there was this time period in the 90s where record labels were willing to forgo Hot 100 placements in order to juice album sales, essentially, in order to go for higher placements and higher sales on the Billboard 200 instead of placement on the Hot 100. As we well know, the ability to sell albums has depleted en masse in the last 20 years since the advent of Napster and then through the download era and of course now in the largely streaming exactly, ecosystem. Exactly. People just don't sell albums like that anymore. I mean, I was even thinking about this with Beyonce this week where she debuted this week with a robust, by 2022 standards, 350,000 albums. In 2016, she was moving 650,000 albums. And, you know, that's a reflection of where she is in her career, but also just the way that people just don't consume albums like that anymore. That seems even more difficult to stack up time to time in the sense that, like, it seems impossible to compare what an artist like Beyonce, the biggest pop star in the world, sells in 2022 versus, like, who her equivalent would have sold in an earlier era. To interrupt you briefly, never mind the fact that, quote-unquote, sales of an album in the 2020s is sometimes half or even mostly streams. Right. It's not actually people buying a full right. album. Right. And then to me, that makes me think that there's been a real depletion or that's led to a real depletion in the cachet of the Billboard 200 chart. I mean, of course, artists still love to tout that they've had a number one album or they've sold X, Y, and Z copies, but it's less braggable when you're stacking that kind of number up against previous metrics. So like in the height of the album sales era, you might think that the number one bragging right would be to be like hey tragic kingdom sold 10 million records that's fucking crazy so what i'm wondering is in this era has the chart cachet between the billboard 200 and the hot 100 almost reversed because album sales aren't that impressive anymore in this particular era and so in a sense they've swapped positions in terms of prestige for current pop stars is the hot 100 more iconic yes more iconic because people can't rely on album sales as a means of projecting their pop stardom they're more concerned with these hot 100 hits Mm -hmm. i'm taken with the idea that these record labels in the 90s were willing to forego these hot 100 placements in order to juice album sales so they were more concerned with britney selling six million records than with her having a number one song that feels the opposite to how things are now 
let me say this about albums and in the biggest big picture. The album is a construct and all an album is, is a bundle of songs. Right. That's been true since the forties. Right. And so as such, the music industry ideally would love you to buy a bundle of songs rather than just an individual song. Mm -hmm. A couple of arguments I have made in my writings and in my podcast is that the album era on the charts, basically I place it roughly from about 1967, and I'll explain why that year, to about the end of the 90s. Right. 1967 is when Sgt. Pepper by the Beatles comes out. Right. Not the first album to be received as a total piece. Certainly not the first Beatles album to top the charts. There have been about a half dozen before that. Not even necessarily the first album to generate no singles. But the Beatles very deliberately wanted you to consume it as an album. And they released no 45s from it. Not even in America where the 45 was still king. And that re wired the entire industry to think of the album as their core unit of measure. It was certainly the most profitable thing they sold. Mm -hmm. And so what you had through the 70s, the album rock era, where, you know, Led Zeppelin would not release something like Stairway to Heaven as a single. Right. Through the 80s, where, you know, they would mine albums for lots of singles to try and convince you to buy Thriller or Born in the USA or Faith by George Michael or Rhythm Nation or what have you. Right. Through the 90s, where they actually stopped releasing singles to convince you to buy an right. album. The record industry went through a roughly, call it 30 to 35 year phase where their entire economic model was built around the album. Mm -hmm. Since digital music disaggregated the album, again, remember what I said before about Steve Jobs. He said, nope, every track is going to be purchasable and they're all going to be a buck. Right. That is something that Apple insisted on when they launched the iTunes Music Store yes. and basically kicked off the legal, not Napster, the legal form of digital music. Right. The album got pulled apart. Mm. And now in the streaming era, for the record industry, they don't care what you consume. If you just want to listen to one song over and over again, as long as you're listening to it over and over again, they're perfectly happy. They're making money. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, yes, the album has gotten taken down a peg because the single is finally profitable enough for the music business. And frankly, this was already true even before Spotify. 10 years ago in the say Katy Perry teenage dream era, Katy Perry's Teenage Dream was officially back then only certified something like double platinum, which for an album with five number one singles is kind of skimpy. I agree. But privately, before Billboard changed all the math on its charts, privately Capitol Records back then was saying, well, it's officially two million according to the RIAA. But when you count all of the dollar downloads we've sold of California Girls and Teenage Dream and Firework and E.T. and Last Friday Night, yeah. that record's quintuple platinum. And they had a point and they weren't just being cute with the math. Their math was pretty solid because right. what they were saying is, hey, if you paid a dollar for each of those tracks, we made just as much as if you'd bought 10 tracks. Right. So legitimately, they made just as much money. It, it did add up. It wasn't fuzzy math. It was legit. And now, of course, in the streaming era where a certain number of streams actually counts toward the album chart, they're really now tracking how much money they're making on an album. One thing I wrote about five years ago for Slate, this was in 2016, I guess it's now six years ago, when his album Views was number one for something like a dozen weeks and many of those weeks it was only number one because of streams it wasn't actually the best-selling album and this was at that moment when the industry was really making the pivot where selling things not just physically but even digitally was not as important as streaming things right i made the argument that there was nothing unfair about drake 
whom I'm only a moderate fan of. There's no fandom dictating this. No, I'm, no, no. I'm neither no. a Drake hater nor a Drake lover. <laughs> okay, do we but know. I was saying that the Drake had played the game right and that it was fair for Drake to spend a dozen weeks at number one with views because here was my counterintuitive point. It actually made views more like an album prior to SoundScan. So let me give you an example. In 1984, only five albums went to number one the entire year. As a Gen Xer, I bring up 1984 a lot because it's my favorite year for pop. I was 13. Of course, I have nostalgia for it. And it was also a legitimately great year. I can tick them off off the fingers on my hand. The five number one albums in all of 1984 were Michael Jackson's Thriller, Mm -hmm. which had spent a bunch of its weeks at number one in 1983. The Footloose soundtrack, Mm -hmm. which spent, I think, 10 weeks at number one. Mm -hmm. Huey Lewis and the News' Sports, which I think only spent a week at number one. Mm -hmm. Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen, which spent about a month at number one, and Princess Purple Rain, which spent 24 weeks at number one. Kind of all killer, no filler, even when you include Footloose, which is a little cheesy. Five killer albums. Now, as much as I love those albums, being a Gen Xer who was a teenager in 1984, that's kind of also a lie because we didn't have SoundScan back then. Mm. Several more albums would have debuted at number one if we'd had better data back then. Mm -hmm. However, the counterintuitive point I was making in this article is during the peak of the SoundScan era, which you probably have great nostalgia for, the 90s and aughts, there was something a little... Not corrupt. There was nothing wrong. The data was sound. But there were number one albums in the 90s that were utterly forgettable. Mm. Like, if I told you that Tupac didn't only have number one albums with big albums like All Eyes on Me, but also the Gridlocked soundtrack. Does anybody remember the Gridlock soundtrack? No. It was a number one album. Mm-hmm. And why was it a number one album? Because for one week, it sold more copies than anything. Right. Or the... Howard Stern's Private Parts, the album from his oh the my movie God, of the same. My run. dad had that fucking album. I remember the cover. A number one album. Do we fondly remember Howard Stern's Private Parts, the album? No. no. But the data showed that for one week, people bought more copies on CD of Howard Stern's Private Parts than anything. Foxy Brown's only number one album is China Doll, mm-hmm. not her previous album, Il Nana, right. which is a far better remembered album. Yes. China Doll like fell off the chart in like two months. Right. They catch me at the hot spot. Foxy Brown deserved a number one album, but it probably shouldn't have been China Doll. Right. But China Doll was her number one album. Right. So like during the SoundScan era where we didn't have streaming or digital music, there were lots of dubious number one albums. Right that are now largely forgotten. Right. In a way, by putting streaming into the album chart, which, by the way, Billboard did at the end of 2014, so since the beginning of the 2015 chart year, a certain number of streams of the songs on an album count toward that album on the album chart. Right. What they've actually done is they've made an album like Views by Drake behave like Purple Rain. Mm. Basically, it sits at number one for many weeks, largely fueled by streaming, but it's the album that is ubiquitously controlling the culture. Mm -hmm. We have one of those albums this summer, not the album that just went to number one as of yesterday, Beyonce's Renaissance, which is only in its first week at number one. Un Verano Sin Ti, A Summer Without You, by Bad Bunny, has been number one for most of the last three months. Right. In most of those weeks, it has not been the best-selling album. Mm. Virtually all of those weeks, other than maybe one or two, it has been number one because of streaming. But 
in a way, it's reflecting something useful in the culture. It's telling everybody, this Bad Bunny album, for the audience that loves Bad Bunny, they are consuming this more than anything, more than even Harry's House. Everybody thought Harry's House would be the dominant album of the summer. Mm. Nope. It sold very well in its first week, but the Harry Styles album has not been as ubiquitous as Un Verano Sin Ti by Bad Bunny. That's useful information. It makes Un Verano Sin Ti kind of like the Footloose soundtrack in 1984. It's this album that sits at number one for 10 weeks because it's kind of culturally ubiquitous. So in a way, the album chart has come back around to be more useful than the Hot 100 on some level, given the way that it can be gamed. I mean, the Hot 100 can be gamed. In a way, yes. And by the way, here's another interesting detail about Bad Bunny in particular. Bad Bunny still has not scored a number one hit on the Hot 100. Right. Yes, he's got the handicap of always singing in Spanish. But he's sometimes teamed up with artists like The Weeknd. In theory, Bad Bunny could have gotten a number one hit on the Hot 100. Isn't the Cardi B song a number one hit? Technically, yes. He was a sporting guy. As a lead artist. artist. Yes, yes. Fair enough. Right, right. Um, So not counting I Like It Mm -hmm. from the summer of 2018, Mm -hmm. I believe that was. That is Bad Bunny's only number one hit, and he was in a supporting role. Mm -hmm. A great supporting role, Mm -hmm. by the way. He's awesome on that track. Mm -hmm. But my point with Bad Bunny is that he's been number one for about three months now, not counting this week when Beyonce took over. Right. Through general ubiquity on multiple tracks. Basically, people are streaming a bunch of different tracks Mm -hmm. on the Bad Bunny album. Those who would poo-poo Bad Bunny being number one for three months and saying, oh, well, ah, I don't hear it anywhere. It's like, no, but the people who are consuming it, they're consuming the whole album. Mm -hmm. They're not just consuming Mi Porto Bonito or whatever the track, the crack, the top 10 is. They're actually consuming the whole album Mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. That's why it's been number one for three months. Mm -hmm. That's useful information. And that to me is kind of like Purple Rain sitting at number one for months and months back in 1984. This album is ubiquitous. It's it's comparable. I love that. In your estimation, what should the Hot 100 be accounting for? And what changes would you make to the way it's accounting for things at the moment to allow that to happen? I'll answer your last question first. And I mentioned this earlier. I would like some rule just so that we don't have the chart overloaded with deep album cuts. Uh, Some kind of threshold for how many tracks on an album make the Hot 100. I feel it would improve the credibility of the chart, even though I firmly believe what Billboard is doing is accurate. I don't feel it's gamed in any way. Here's the facts. When Drake drops an album, any album, even one that was not terribly well-received like Certified Loverboy last year, Drake is the king of streaming mm-hmm. other than maybe Bad Bunny. I mean, I'm, there's mm-hmm. nobody who competes with Drake on streaming. His streams are just so, so much higher. It swamps the chart. And for one yeah. week, every track that he puts out will like take over the top 40. I would like it if there were some threshold on that. And I'm not sure how it would be. And it's easy for me to say as an outsider, the temptation is to only promote radio singles, but then you're giving back too much power to radio. So I don't know how you balance that out. And what it measures and, and how people regard it. I mean, again, to repeat something I said earlier, it is the best chart we have to measure activity on a weekly basis. And we all, me included, I have a podcast that is that revolves around this. We all take these chart peaks very seriously. But in fact, we have to keep perspective that this chart is compiled one week at a time. And in any given week, the data may get skewed in this way or that by rhythms in our culture that, by the way, are not corrupt or illegal or cheating. It's just that mm-hmm. for one week, all of the fans of Beyonce showed up 
and pushed this song to number one. Mm -hmm. In one week, all of the fans of Drake showed up to listen to Certified Loverboy, and every track on Certified Loverboy crashes onto the Hot 100. If you can keep perspective about that, I think Hot 100 fandom is a lot more enjoyable. Yeah, right. You can see the patterns and see the ways that this chart has evolved over the years and sort of appreciate what it's good at rather than bemoaning what it no longer does the way it did mm. when you were a kid. Because mm -hmm. again, the so-called good old days were pretty corrupt in ways that were sometimes not because of corruption. Sometimes it was simply because we didn't have the data. More right. often than not, the reason why the chart was, quote, corrupt back when it was corrupt was simply because we didn't have the data to do a better job. And now we do. You've changed my thinking, I have to say. I went into this a little bit curmudgeonly about the current situation, but you've managed to make me see that, like, the idea that there was some pure expression of these things in an earlier era is kind of a fogey thing for me to even well and and let me be fair to you as a guy who has to write about number one hits for slate when they happen and i no longer write about all of them because so many fluky number one hits like that short-lived drake what's next track i didn't write about that right but when those songs go to number one if i could had a nickel for every time i've cursed when i found out what's number one like ugh, really like what's next by drake i gotta write about that and then i call my editor and tell yeah. him i'm not gonna write about what's right. next by drake you don't mind do you and he's like nah nobody's gonna care right like I am as grumbly and as curmudgeonly as you right. a lot of the time. There's a part of me that misses the good old days where one record was released at a time, it rose up the chart, it peaked, it crested, and it fell. But yes. what we have learned in the last 30 years, again, even before streaming, even before digital music, as far back as the early 90s when SoundScan happened, was that's not actually the way songs become popular. One of the things we learned when SoundScan happened in the early 90s is that often a single will debut really high because of sales to rabid fans of an artist. Mm -hmm. Then the single will drop off because radio hasn't caught onto it yet and passive and casual fans haven't caught right. onto it. And then it sometimes rises back up the chart because now the casual fans have caught on. And so these weird patterns, they're not corrupt or wrong or illegal or misrepresenting anything. If anything, they are closer to human nature. There are active fans and passive fans of any artist, of any song. What remains cool about the charts is when a song, when something like what happened this summer to Kate Bush happens, for example, that is so organic, right? I agree. It was fueled by a Netflix show, but the Netflix show did not guarantee that running up that hill would become a top three hit in the summer of 2022. When things like that happen, or when last week's number one song, Lizzo's About Damn Time, yeah. that record took 14 weeks to rise to number one, the old fashioned way, climbing a little bit at a time. And TikTok yeah. helped, and it jumped a few notches because of TikTok, but TikTok did not get it all the way to number one then it had to catch on at radio and radio right. was the thing that pushed it to number one mm -hmm. it does still happen so even when i am curmudgeonly myself and it does happen <laughs> i remind myself that there are still records that claw their way to number yes. one that's why i enjoy this chart and why i still follow it and still like writing about it is there a song as my final final question that's kind of percolating around right now that you hope oh hits gosh. number one that we can oh, send the podcast wow. out on well let's go with running up that hill what the hell yeah that's a fun one that would be fucking Iconic right that, that would be amazing like <laughs> it may happen by the end of the summer that running up that hill by some miracle runs up that hill and goes all the way to number one or it may wind up peaking at number three i have been wrong since june many times about what that track would do and i have loved being wrong that's been a delight of the hot 100 this summer for sure yeah so god bless kate bush <laughs> amazing all right well chris malavi thank you so so much for coming back on the show it was my pleasure louis and you ask great questions as always <laughs> <laughs>